Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Thursday, August 18th, we're studying Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 1 to 29. The Lord is about to lead Israel into the promised land and subdue the nations before them. But Moses reminds Israel that the Lord isn't doing that because Israel has any righteousness of their own. In fact, Israel has proved to be rebellious to the Lord from Mount Sinai onward. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Carl Roth. Pastor Roth serves at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. Pastor Roth, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Delighted to be here, Pastor Apple. As we get started today, Pastor Roth, let's talk a little bit of context. What should we know about Deuteronomy? Moses' words leading up to this chapter as we get started today. Deuteronomy is a recap, basically, of what had come before in um, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, And it is um, a catechetical text, I think, because it's basically reminding the people of what the Lord had originally done for them, what he had promised them, what he had told them to do, how they had messed up. And now he's warning them not to um, fall back into the same patterns that they had before when they entered the promised land, but also assuring them that the Lord is going to be with them so that they can have the confidence to do what he is calling on them to do. And the Lord has assured them that he's not going to leave them or forsake them, but he's going to be with them every step of the way. And even though the challenges that they'll face seem insurmountable to human reason, nonetheless, the power of the Lord is going to uh, accomplish what he has said he's going to do. And so, and he has also set precedents in the past through the Exodus. Who could have thought that you could actually defeat Pharaoh, right? So if you can defeat Egypt, then surely you can defeat the guys who are hanging out in Canaan. That's right. That's right. And we've, we've heard particularly in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses has emphasized the defeat of the kings on the east side of the Jordan River already. And so if he can do that, going into the promised land shouldn't be a problem. Uh, we're, we're here in, in Deuteronomy chapter 9. Let's go ahead and, and pick up some of the text. We're going to hear Moses. Well, I think we read through verse 7 or so to get us started. Deuteronomy 9. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today, to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourselves, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know, and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, 
and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Right, that takes us through verse 6. That's where I'm going to pause. I think that's where Professor Harstad makes a break in this chapter as well in his commentary. He, he finds in verse 7 and 24 a bit of an inclusion. So let's talk about those first six verses of the chapter, Pastor Roth. It strikes me, the very first word of this chapter here, O mm-hmm. Israel, listen, yeah. this has been a pretty key word in the book of Deuteronomy. Yeah, it's the same as, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Um, so yeah, it's it's look up, you know, listen up. So it, it really does draw attention to what the people are going to be doing now. There's something major happening. Well, and, and that's quite the, again, when you think about what the people of Israel are about to do, to go over and possess the promised land, they're going to conquer these nations. It's going to be described in the book of Joshua. The first thing that the Lord gives them to do here is not to train or not to go to boot camp, but it's to listen to him. This is the the action of the Christian. Exactly. Yeah. The church is to be a mouth house. Uh, it's it's a, to be a place where the word of God is spoken and heard. Uh, this is why Dr. Chemnitz described the church as preachers and hearers mm. is basically, it's not that preachers are above hearers or hearers above preachers, but it is a community in which the preaching and hearing of the word is the central activity. Mm. And so that is true for the people of Israel as they prepare to, as Moses tells them, cross over the Jordan today. What, is, what does Moses have to say as he talks about this action that's about to take place of going across the Jordan River? So they are going to dispossess nations that are greater and mightier. And he emphasizes that, again, according to human reason, according to sight, these cities look like they're fortified up to heaven. It kind of reminds me of the Tower of Babel, right? It's this giant tower. And so imagine going to um, up against an enemy today that had giant nuclear warheads pointed at you or something like that. This is a, it seems to be something that you could not possibly defeat. This is a David and Goliath type situation. So that's what, when, when Moses asks that question, you know, whom you have heard it said, who can stand before these sons of Anak? The answer is, at least colloquially, but nobody can do that. Right. This would have been a proverb like, you know, nobody can take these guys down. They're okay. undefeated. Right. So, okay, this is who you're going to go. What's the encouragement then that Moses gives them? Um, the Lord has done previously... Um, exactly what he's going to do to the Anakim. And so he says, I'm going to go with you, and he is crossing over before you. So it's his presence that is going with him, just as he has gone with them in the pillar of cloud by day, in the pillar of fire by night, so also he's going to cross over before them and prepare a way. Hmm. And it, the Moses describes particularly that the Lord is a consuming fire in verse 3. So the, the fire that led the people now will be turned against the people of, of Canaan. Yeah, I, you could almost say the fire of the Lord is law and gospel, right? Mm. It is law in that the Lord's fire has repeatedly um, flamed up and consumed Israelites when they have rebelled against the Lord, when they have complained against him or tested him. Um, the flame of the Lord on Mount Sinai was was terrifying because the law itself does accuse and threaten, and it is it is terrifying. Um, so the the law of the the fire of the Lord, the consuming fire, can actually be rather terrifying to us, according to the flesh. But according to the new man, according to the spirit, we recognize that the fire of the Lord 
is a refining fire that purges us of sin. And then also it is when he wields his wrath, when he uh, turns his wrath against his enemies to protect his people, then the fire of the Lord is a good thing for us. It's protecting and that's what the Lord promises to do for his people. So again, and this, you know, just to think through the book of Deuteronomy a little bit here, at the beginning of the book and that first sermon that Moses preached, he reminded the people, you were going to do this once before and you blew it. Right. <laughs> here, here again, now here comes the promise to this new generation, trust in the Lord. He's going with you. He's going before you as this consuming fire. And so these people, no one thinks you can stand before them but you, you can know that you will because of the Lord. Exactly. So earlier, of course, they had many years earlier. That's they right. had yeah. they had sent the Lord had sent um, the spies into the land to check it out, and they of course determined that it was a very fruitful, beautiful land. Um, but apart from Caleb and Joshua, every, the other spies came back and reported that the 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 men there were just so big and dominant that there's no way they could be overcome. Caleb and Joshua said, no, it's a great land and the Lord's going to go with us. So we don't have anything to fear, but the people were swayed in a sort of democratic vote, I guess you could say, uh, to, uh, to listen to the 10 strength in numbers, the 10 spies who were not faithful. And that was going to result in them, um, being wandering for the those thirty eight years, so this is a essentially a, a second chance, right? The Lord, that first generation died in the wilderness, and now the next generation is going to be admonished not to repeat the sins of the fathers. That's right. So, and that's that admonishment and about the sins of the fathers is really where Moses starts to turn in verse four. It, Moses tells the people, "Don't say in your heart after the Lord's done this, after He's defeated these Anakim, don't start to think." that it's because of your own righteousness. That's not the reason, he says. And we've heard Moses talk like this previously in chapter 7. He reminds them that God didn't choose them because they were so numerous. God chose them because he loved them. Yep. Here, here it's not because of their righteousness, but in fact, and this is maybe surprising, the reason that's given, the reason that God gives here that he's driving these people out really has nothing to do with Israel at all, but it's rather these nations are wicked and they need to be driven out. Yeah. So back in Genesis 15, verse 16, the Lord had said that the sin of the Amorites had not yet been filled up. And so the Lord had given these these Canaanite peoples generations, centuries even, to repent and um, amend their ways. Um, so he was patient with them, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, even toward this people that he had not specifically called as his own. But as we see now, 400-some years later, um, they they have not repented. In fact, they have committed atrocities untold. And now it is time for the Lord to execute his vengeance upon them for their idolatry and for their sins against the second table of the law as well. Hmm. So, and I think these verses in chapter 9 of Deuteronomy are important for us to keep in mind. This is one of the objections sometimes that you'll hear thrown at Christians is, or, or some that look how mean. That's such mm-hmm. a such a, yeah. a weak word. But look how mean God is in the Old Testament. This is a good reminder that these nations who were driven out of Canaan, they were not nice people. No. They were no. quite wicked. And and the Lord is just in what he does. Absolutely. And another, you know, a New Testament passage this reminds me of is Luke 13. Mm-hmm. You know, with the Tower of Siloam and the um, Pilate mixing the blood of the sacrifices with the the, uh, the people making the sacrifices. And Jesus doesn't say that, you know, they were more wicked, right? right? I mean, they were wicked, 
And when sinners have bad things happen to them, we have it coming. But the takeaway is repent. And so instead of the Israelites getting all self-righteous and thinking we're going to dispossess these people because we're better than them somehow, the Lord is saying, no, their wickedness is, is so great that they must be driven out. They must be eradicated. You're going to be a holy people set apart to take this land and use it for the Lord's purposes. Just don't become like them. That's right. And don't become prideful mm-hmm. watching what happens to them. And so, I mean, when it comes to like disaster coming upon anyone, I, so it kind of it depends on which side you're on. If you're the one receiving the disaster, it's an opportunity to repent of whatever wickedness may reside in you. If you're the one watching disaster fall upon something, it's also an opportunity for you right. to repent of your own sin and not become prideful over and against those who receive yeah. the— but for the grace of God go I— yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So this is the the great warning here is watch out so that you don't become prideful because it's not about your righteousness. It's about their wickedness. So mm-hmm. that's that's one reason given for one what's reason. about to happen. Yep. Yep. Then the other reason is one that we're probably a little more familiar with. It's also because God's going to keep his promise. That's what yeah. comes up at the end of verse five. Exactly. So it's kind of twofold. What it, what it absolutely does eliminate, though, is any sort of human virtue or inherent righteousness. It's going to be for the sake of the Lord's promises that he's made. So it's going to be for the sake of his name, his reputation, and his love and mercy that he's shown to Israel. So all of this is to remind the people that the Lord has something good in store for them. He is going to drive them out and then to tell them, but it's not your, you didn't do anything. It's not to your credit. This is the Lord being a just judge against wickedness. And this is the Lord being true to himself, to his name, to his promises that he's made. Keep that in mind. And lest you forget, <laughs> let's go through a little bit of history. At verse 6, just briefly, we, we read that already. It's, it's again, not because of your righteousness. You're actually a stubborn people. Mm-hmm. Then Moses is going to go stiff on. Stiff of neck. Right? Okay, so stiff of neck. What's, what's, the, what's the phrase there? What does that mean? Oh, well, I mean, the, the image that-, that I take here is, is like an ox, right? So if you've ever worked cattle and try to get them to go one direction or the other, their neck is so stiff, and they're so stubborn. And if they pull the other direction, you know, there's not much you can do. And so this is a, a an image that recurs throughout the scriptures. When Stephen is about to be stoned, he says, you know, you stubborn or stiff-necked people, it's in translation, of course, you stiff-necked people always resisting the Holy Spirit, right? What prophet did you not persecute? Right. And so... This really just drives home that point that there's absolutely no righteousness in the Israelites, and in fact, they're doing the opposite. This We'll see the term rebel later, and a, and a, a cow or an ox, when you try to you know, get their neck to move, they rebel against it. They pull in the opposite direction. All right, and that's who Israel is. That yeah, In the ESV, translated stubborn, the literal the literal way of thinking about it is a stiff-necked person. Mm-hmm. So that's who Israel is. Moses is reminding of that, and he's going to recount some history here in Deuteronomy chapter 9 to help the people remember. So we keep reading now in verse 7 of the chapter. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. When I went up the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord made with you, I remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. 
I neither ate bread nor drank water. And the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And at the end of forty days and forty nights, the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here, for your people, whom you have brought from Egypt, have acted corruptly. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made themselves a metal image. Furthermore, the Lord said to me, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stubborn people. Let me alone, that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. So I turned and came down from the mountain, and the mountain was burning with fire. And the two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands. And I looked, and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made yourselves a golden calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. So I took hold of the two tablets and threw them out of my two hands and broke them before your eyes. Then I lay prostrate before the Lord as before, forty days and forty nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all the sin that you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you, so that he was ready to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me that time also. And the Lord was so angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him. And I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. Then I took the sinful thing, the calf that you had made, and burned it with fire and crushed it, grinding it very small until it was as fine as dust. And I threw the dust of it into the brook that ran down from the mountain. At Taberah also, and at Massa and Kibroth Hatavah, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and take possession of the land that I have given you, then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God and did not believe him or obey his voice. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. That takes us through verse 24, that re- rebellious language that began this section. Verse 7 and verse 24 both use that language. <laughs> verse 24, you've been rebels from when I yeah. when I first knew you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you know, it's so funny, like with children. Um <laughs> Some characteristics um, of of certain children, it seems like from infancy onward, they've got these inherent characteristics, and that's the way Moses is is describing the Israelites. Well, certainly, and and in verse verse 7, the beginning of that section that we just read, the the way that he describes them, it is like, I mean, from the beginning to the end, from here to there— they've been rebellious the whole time. That's so they, and again, just to remember what the point he's making is you have no inherent righteousness. This is not why the Lord is doing it because your history shows the exact opposite. Yeah. And so let's not also, um, get all high and mighty ourselves and look back on the Israelites. Yeah. So, uh, Ecclesiastes, the wisest man ever, Solomon says, surely (laughs) there is not a man who is righteous and who does not sin. So we need to identify ourselves with these Israelites. This is our fallen sinful nature. And again, but for the grace of God, we would be perishing in the wilderness of this world. Well, and I mean, St. Paul in, was it 1 Corinthians 10, where he talks about that these things are written for your instruction exactly. and take heed lest you fall? Oh, so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, this section actually is very reminiscent. I wouldn't be surprised if Paul had this passage in mind because he, he basically is just listing a similar list of those events in which the people rebelled, the Lord judged them, you know, 
it's time for you to, to take the same warning. That's right. Yep. So, so these, as you said at the very beginning, Deuteronomy being a catechetical book, although this history, we weren't there on Mount Sinai like the people originally listening to it, there's much here for us to take heed to as well so that we would not fall into the pride of the generation that didn't go in or this generation that did go in but also had their struggles with rebellion. Yes, and and I mean, even to apply this just to common sense day-to-day life, there are a lot of ideologies today that um, put forward a very optimistic view of human nature mm. and think that we're born as basically a blank slate, or blank slate or basically good. And the Old Testament and the New Testament both do a great job of disabusing that folly and helping us realize that we are rotten to the core and, in, and apart from good discipline exerted upon us from outside or the development of a conscience and a, a, a can mastery of the will, things are going to go awry. All right. So Moses helps us with a lot of these important things today. In verse seven, to, to dig into the text, you've got remember, don't forget. This has been yeah. another common theme in the book of Deuteronomy. Crucial. Yeah. Talk about the, the importance of memory for the Christian. Oh, my goodness. I mean, do this in remembrance of me, right? So, um, and it's not that we can remember that which happened in the past apart from a text, apart from the Lord breaking into our own time and telling us this is what happened. But apart from, you know, remembering all the good things that the Lord has done, um, we would be lost. We would have no hope in this world. Mm. But then most importantly, it is that God thinks upon us. He remembers us. He remembers his promises. And and, and remembrance is not just a thinking word, it's actually a doing verb for the Lord. Right, yeah, when the Lord remembers us, uh, like he remembers Noah on the ark, that's when he acts, that's his action for us. And then how important it is for us to remember what the Lord has done, lest we fall into the self-righteousness that he's warning about here. Or provocation, right? We see don't don't forget how you provoked mm-hmm. the Lord. You know, this is, we should we should dwell on that word for a minute, because we tend to think of the Lord as just kind of like this sleepy grandpa off, you know, in the in the distance who doesn't, you know, he doesn't pour down fire out of heaven, you know, in, in the same way that we have seen him do throughout throughout the the Pentateuch. Um, and but nonetheless, we should think of our sin as very great and grave and provoking the Lord's anger and His discipline and punishment. Mm, that, that that's a very helpful point because, and I think it's it's very applicable to our day and age. Again, when you think about the sins that characterize our generation still, that these things actually do provoke the Lord, and we should take that very seriously and not view him, as you said, a sleepy grandpa, but one who is living and active according to his word. And rightly, I mean, yeah, we rightly deserve punishment. That's all we deserve, as Luther reminds us in the Catechism. Absolutely. Yeah. So so certainly something to to keep in mind. We were talking before we before we started today about how, you know, advanced planning and I try to remind my my family, you know, well yes, we're making these advanced plans, but but perhaps the Lord will come first and we pray for that. And and sometimes I, I wonder, you know, if the Lord doesn't come first that we may not need these advanced plans because of the Lord may pour out his wrath upon us before that. And I, I mean, I don't, not to be overly yeah. pessimistic, but to recognize we too provoke the Lord. We should take care lest we fall under his judgment. Indeed. Yeah. So we're not going to provoke the Lord. We're going to remember. We're not going to forget. Here we've got the account primarily of the golden calf. As we start to look at some of the details that Moses brings out, just the nature of, of what he says it's probably worth pointing out that as he speaks in Deuteronomy chapter 9, he is 
preaching a sermon, and he's not retelling things in the exact mm-hmm. order all the yeah. time as we get them in the book of Exodus. Or with exact... So the details are... You can harmonize them, but he omits certain things that we see in the Exodus account. Right, and he does that for the purposes of what he's doing here in Deuteronomy, reminding the people that you are rebellious, the Lord is doing this because of his promise made to your fathers and because of the wickedness of these nations. That's the reason Moses shapes things as he does. So verse 8, this is this is striking, I think. Even at Horeb, right, this place where the Lord's there on the mountain yeah. speaking to you, they even there. They had just there. gotten the Ten Commandments, right? Yeah. So, I mean, like he, he will later in Exodus 31, 32, get the commandments written down, but, but he had... They had heard the Ten Commandments. They had heard a recounting of what the Lord had done for them before, even there, right? Just right after they got it. Kind of makes you think of the Garden of Eden. You know, Luther thought that they fell on the, what, seventh day. You know, basically, we just got this word from the Lord, and then boom, we're already rebelling against Mm -hmm. it. So even at Horeb, this Mm -hmm. is where it started. Uh, Take us into some of the things that that Moses, as he describes what happened there leading up to the golden calf, what what does he say about what he was doing up there on the mountain with the two tablets of stone? So notice he goes up to receive the tablets. So he doesn't go up to like kind of make up his own man-made law. He goes up to receive the word of the Lord. And the tablets are of the covenant. And so this, this particular covenant is one in which there is a stipulation given by the Lord, that if you obey these commandments, then I will do this. So this is, to some extent, different from the covenant, say, with Noah, in which the Lord promised he's never going to cause a flood to cover the earth again. So that's a unilateral covenant. Likewise, the covenant with Abraham, unilateral. I'm going to make you a father of many nations. In your offspring, the Christ, all nations shall be blessed. The Abraham, the Mosaic covenant does have a different nature. And these tablets then are going to provide evidence of the covenant, a visible sign, and that's going to make it, well, let's just go ahead and we already heard it. He's going to break them to smithereens. And that's a visible, you know, object lesson showing them you've broken the covenant. They saw that they saw the tablets. The Lord didn't withhold them, right? That he did bring the covenant the, the tablets down. The Lord, word of the Lord is still valid. His covenant, he has not broken the covenant. The breaking of the tablets is to emphasize their breaking of the covenant. So the, the breaking of the tablets isn't just Moses because he's mad. Yeah. You know, that's the way we kind of read it probably. I, he was so angry. But no, it, there's actually uh, several elements to it. Um, so one is that the, t- the, the tablets serve as this testimony against, against Israel. He holds them up, and it's like, look, you broke this law, which you had already heard. Back in Exodus 20, um, again, it shows that the Lord is the faithful partner. He's given his word and uses it then as an object lesson. All right. So that's where we are going to take our break here on Sharper Iron. We're talking Deuteronomy chapter 9 with Pastor Carl Roth. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? 
Imagine a college that is affordable, a college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran, a college that won't take a dime of federal funding, a college that teaches the best of our Western heritage, a college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College, a college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, August 18th. We're studying Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 1 to 29 with Pastor Carl Roth. He serves at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. Pastor Roth, prior to the break, we were looking at what happens on the mountain when the Lord gives the two tablets of stone. 40 days, 40 nights elapse. We're going to see that come up a couple of times in this text, and maybe we can make a connection to Jesus. One of the things that strikes me is the Lord begins to tell Moses on the mountain what's happening at the foot of the mountain is the Lord says to Moses, arise, go down quickly. He says, for your people Mm -hmm. whom you brought from Egypt. That's, That's quite the the change of tone from the way the Lord usually speaks. Right. So normally he would speak of, you know, I, well, he had just said it in Exodus 20, I am the Lord your God, your God, yeah. who brought you up out of, of Egypt. So now he's distancing himself from the people to emphasize that they are separating themselves from him. To consecrate or to make holy means to set apart for holy use, but the people are desecrating themselves by setting themselves apart from the word of the Lord and are really driving themselves away from him. And it is, it feels a little unfair to Moses here, right? You <laughs> yeah. know, like it's not, well, he's like, well, I, I was here. I was on the top <laughs> of the mountain with you, Lord. I mean, but nonetheless, the Lord has given him this charge. And so he does have to exercise responsibility for shepherding this flock. He was called, a, he was a shepherd and now he was called to be a shepherd of the people. He's ultimately pointing forward to our Lord Jesus Christ uh, who is the great shepherd of the sheep. Right, and and we should keep in mind the way the Lord speaks to Moses here so that when we come up to the way the that Moses speaks to the Lord later, we see how the mm-hmm. Moses is, he keeps God's promises in mind and he yep. turns the tables on he God, does. so to speak, yeah. and says, yep. no, no, they're not my people, Lord, yep. they're exactly. yours. Yep. So we need to keep that in mind. In the meantime, the Lord keeps speaking to Moses and, and he, he says, look, I've seen them. They're stubborn, stiff-necked again. Yep, yep. And he says, leave me alone that I may destroy them <laughs> and blot out their name from under heaven. You, the term blo- yeah. blot out their name from under heaven, what's the significance of that? You think about that? blotting out, just completely eradicating. And um, I, it's used here in a very negative sense, right, under God's wrath. But I also I did want to point out that in Isaiah 43 and Isaiah 44 and in Psalm 51, that exact term, blot out, is used for what the Lord does with sins, blot out my iniquities and my transgressions. So the Lord who could blot us out, completely eradicate us, is in his mercy going to blot out our sins and transgressions. Mm. So again, a word that can be used in both law and gospel mm-hmm. context. Yep. Here, very much law to be blotted out from under heaven forever. I mean, this is the worst judgment that you can receive, yet Moses will take refuge and he, when he prays in the Lord who blots out our sins instead. Yeah, and it's worth noting also in verse 14 that the Lord says, I'll make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. You know, Moses doesn't at that point say, hmm, that sounds pretty good. These people are a pain in the butt, right? I need to get rid of these people, and then I can start fresh. No, you know, so again, he's this type of Christ. He's a, he's a shadow, foreshadowing of Christ, that he he doesn't think about himself, but he thinks about the people. Mm, that's right. Yeah, so again, Moses with, with these this 
offer from God, we're going to hear him actually intercede on behalf of these people later. So in, in verse 15, again, as Moses is, is recounting some of the things that happened back in the book of Exodus, he actually comes down the mountain now and, and he sees the burning fire. He looks, he's got the two tablets and you had sinned against the Lord. And he, he specifies now, I think this is the first time we've heard it here in this yeah. text. We know what we're talking about, but he says, you'd made for yourselves a golden calf. Yeah. So what's the, I mean, the golden calf, I know we're not, what's the significance of this golden calf? Well, it's a, a very specific uh, rebellion against the first commandment. The appendix to the first commandment said that you're not to make any graven images. Mm. And so this is the visible manifestation of the idolatry that was already present in their hearts. Mm. All right. So they make this golden calf. And and in the book of Exodus, it's, it's probably worth going back and, and flipping back there when you have a moment to go back to Exodus 32 through 34 and to see what they say about this golden calf. They, they worship this golden calf as if it is the Lord, the one who brought yeah. them out of Egypt. Right. I mean, it's just a it's a very horrific moment in the book of Exodus. Moses brings it up here again to remind the people you have no righteousness of your own. You had turned aside quickly. That's right. Yeah, quickly. Even here, even in just these 40 days in which he was on the mountain, you've already turned aside. Yep. All right. So this is the moment then when Moses, as we said earlier, he takes the tablets, he throws them, he breaks them, the Mm -hmm. sign that the people of Israel are the ones responsible for breaking the covenant, not the Lord. They're the ones that have broke it. Then Moses says in verse 18 that he lays prostrate before the Lord for another 40 days and 40 nights fasting. This is this is another 40 days and 40 nights, right? So what's going on here again with the, the 40 days and 40 nights? What's Moses doing in verse 18? Well, he is supplicating, interceding on behalf of the people. And and I was thinking about how you, you can't hear 40 days and 40 nights and Deuteronomy and not associate it with the, the temptation of our Lord. And it made me think, what was our Lord Jesus Christ doing during those 40 days? Mm-hmm. And I have to think, we're not told specifically, but he has to have been praying to his father. And I think he was praying on our behalf. And Moses here again is being this foreshadowing or type of Christ. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Moses foreshadowing what Christ is doing. And again, not this is where we do start to see his intercession already, rather than saying, yeah, I'll, I'll be the next great nation. No, he's interceding for these people of Israel to whom the Lord has made promise. It doesn't sound like it was the the most pleasant of times for Moses. Uh, He was afraid of the anger and and hot displeasure from the Lord, Uh, but the Lord did listen to him, we hear in that verse. Yes. But then we also get that added detail that he was angry with Aaron, which which is only given here. Um, This is unique. We don't get that in in Exodus. And um, uh, Dr. Harstead, who wrote the commentary for Concordia commentary series comments that Aaron had been the midwife at the birth of the golden calf. And I thought that was a great, a great uh, observation. And this is, so uh, we see again and again, uh, the unrighteousness of the people, even to the point that their high priest, Aaron, who's supposed to be, you know, acting in Moses stead while he's up on the mountain, a leader of the people, an intercessor before, before God, and he even he falls. So this just shows the depth to which they they have fallen. Yeah, Aaron, if I recall from Exodus, he he says that it just popped out of the fire. Oh yeah, right. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I just I just uh, threw it in and boom, out came it. But yeah, he was actually a craftsman. That's right? right. And and again, we see Moses as a type of Christ because in the book of Hebrews, the high priests are not able to continue in office. Aaron had fu- failed to fulfill his office but Christ is the high priest forever. Mm. All right. So again, the the unrighteousness of the people goes all the way to the top. Once again, and, and 
making the point that this doesn't this detail is not in the book of Exodus. It makes sense that Moses would include it here when he wants the people to remember they're not going to the promised land because of their own righteousness, but because of the Lord. And so, then also Moses. I mean, sure. you know, even though he was, you know, he comes off better in here yeah. than the rest of the Israelites. We, we do recall that he did fail to obey every last jot and tittle of the Lord's That's right. word. And so so we then can see while Moses was a type or foreshadowing of Christ, he falls short. Only one is righteous, the righteous one, Jesus Christ. That's right. That's right. And Moses, although he doesn't bring that matter up here specifically, he does elsewhere in the book of Deuteronomy remind them that he's not going into the promised land mm-hmm. either. Yep. Yeah. So, okay. And verse 21, then, the end of the golden calf incident here uh, is a reminder of what Moses actually did with the golden calf. He quite, quite violent again. Right. Yeah. And then in Exodus, of course, we hear that he makes the people drink some of it. And that's not incompatible with this text, because if it's running down the brook, he could have forced them to go down and take some of it and drink it up. Right. So that's the end of the golden calf incident as kind of exhibit A of the rebellion of these people. Moses then includes other examples. In verse 22, he mentions several places in great succession where he simply says, you provoke the Lord to wrath. I don't know if I'm pronouncing these right. Tabara, Masa, Kibroth, Hatava. What what are these references to? Sure. Okay. So Tabara is recorded in Numbers 11. Um, interestingly, the name means burning. Hmm. And there we have the people complaining, kind of a nondescript complaining. Moses intercedes, but some of the people are consumed by fire. So this is, um, you know, we had heard earlier Moses referred to the Lord as this consuming fire. And, and the people having been through this and knowing this, even the children, right, having heard the stories about what had happened in the wilderness, this would have been a, a very vivid, tangible example of the Lord's burning wrath. Hmm. And then we have uh, Masa. This is recorded in Exodus 17. We also get a reference to that in Psalm 95. Right. Um, and, and so the name there means uh, testing. And they ask the question, is Yahweh among us or not? Is the Lord with us or not? So this is that sin of despair, the sin against the first commandment, where you doubt that the Lord is keeping his promises and he's present with you. Um, also, Meribah is is uh, associated with Masa, right. and that word means quarreling. That was the, that was the place where they had complained about lack of water, yes. and Moses struck the rock. That's and, right. And he was right to do so in that moment. He was right to do so the second time he was supposed to speak to the rock, and then, yeah, that right. was his peccadillo. Which, That's right. That's <laughs> which, right. Which, of course, is like what St. James says, that if one has kept the law in you know all parts but is failed in one, then he's guilty of all of it. That's right. What about uh, Kibroth Hatava? This is Numbers 11 as well. Picks up right after Tabara. Um very vivid name means graves of craving. So there, the people were complaining about the gift of manna. They, you know, this worthless food and they were, they were discontent with that. And so some of the people were struck by a plague there and, and then were put into the graves for the, their craving Mm. for, and, and, and that you can't help but think of man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Yeah. Well, and, and in verse 22, all of these places are places where they, again, provoke the Lord to wrath, which that's the way that Moses described the golden calf incident. And you've got gross idolatry on the one hand, and you've got, well, it just sounds like complaining or, or covetousness. And I forget, is it St. Paul, though, who mm-hmm. who puts covetous and yeah. idolatry right together? Right next to each other, Colossians. Yeah, covetousness, which is idolatry. Um, fundamentally thinking of myself first and not simply being content with the gifts the mm. Lord has given me. Yeah, so I, again, and talk about 
another reminder for us, you know, it's easy for us to, to say, well, you know, I wouldn't have complained mm-hmm. about water. Well, uh, you, you might have. Yeah. You, yeah. you might have. And, yeah. and the covetousness that certainly is very prevalent among us, I mean, that provokes the Lord to wrath. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. It is a fearful warning. That's right. So uh, one more place name, mm-hmm. and we know a Very little bit. important. This yeah, is crucial. So Kadesh Barnea in verse mm-hmm. 23. We get a little more detail. Remind us of, of Kadesh Barnea. Well, this is a, a reference to Numbers 13 and 14. And when this is when they had sent the spies into the, whole, the promised land to, to check it out. And we've already kind of made reference to that, how Joshua and Caleb were the faithful ones and, and encouraged them to go forward with what the Lord had told them to do. But the people overruled them and chose to stay, which is what leads to their 38 years of, of wandering and right. now kind of a reboot. Right. That's right. When it should have just been an 11 day journey, yeah. right? a very short 11 journey days. Yep. turned into 38 years because of what happened at Kadesh Barnea. And we've, we've heard Moses recount that in the book of Deuteronomy several times already. And then verse 24 ends that section. You've been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. Mm-hmm. I don't, we haven't said much about the word rebellious. What is, I mean, in, in what way are, are we Rebels. Why is it important that we use that that language? It's actually crucial. Um, the 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 concept here would be that God is King, mm-hmm. and so a rebellion against the King is a revolution. And it's treason, and treason is, of course, historically even to this day, um, a capital crime. Yeah. And so we, for our sins, every one of our sins is a rebellion against the Most High God. We're traitors. Um, revolutionaries, and we deserve to have our heads removed and spend eternity in hell. But that uh, this passage makes me think of, of Romans 5, where St. Paul says, while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God through his son, Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. and saved from his wrath. So again and again, as I'm reading the Old Testament and seeing their rebellion, I have to go to Romans 5 and think, that's me. Yeah. I'm just like them. But God shows his love for us in that while while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Mm, that's right. That's right. So again, this length, this what well, this is happening 3,500 years ago or so. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, yep. these events that happened then are very applicable to us today, uh, teaching us who we are and more importantly, who our Lord is in his grace toward us. So that brings us to verse 25. We pick up the rest of the chapter. Moses continues, So I lay prostrate before the Lord for these forty days and forty nights, because the Lord had said he would destroy you. And I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your heritage, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people, or their wickedness, or their sin, lest the land from which you brought us say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them. And because he hated them, he has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. For they are your people and your heritage, whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. That brings us to the end of Deuteronomy chapter 9. So Pastor Roth, Moses, I guess he rewinds or goes back to something he's already spoken about in this sermon, to his intercessory prayer. Once again, the 40 days, the 40 nights, laying prostrate before the Lord. Just a, What does that mean, that he laid prostrate before the Lord? I don't know that I hear that anywhere except the scriptures in church. Right, so face down, okay. right? So he throws himself on the ground before the Lord. And in fact, 
a lot of times in the New Testament, when you hear when you see a term translated as worship, mm. you re, it really is it's the same Greek term for prostrating yourself. And so we should see people really not just merely worshiping Jesus, but throwing themselves down on their faces before His feet. Mm. What's I mean? What's the importance of that posture? What? Well, I'd, it shows that you're well. First of all, humiliating yourself. Mm. You're not coming with your chest puffed out and saying, you know, I'm, I'm a big shot here. You, you ought to give this to me. So you're throwing yourself at the mercy of the one who you're standing before. Mm-hmm. All right. And so Moses does that for 40 days and, and 40 nights, he says, again, going, going back to what he brought up earlier, because the Lord said he would destroy you. And then we get his prayer in, in verse 26. We've already mentioned some of this. What are, what are some of the things we need to see from Moses prayer? So, you know, you, you alluded to this earlier that, the Lord had distanced himself from the people by saying, that's your people, Moses. And so, it, and he was ready to cast them off and destroy them and blot them out. Here, Moses is actually geniusly appealing to the promises of God and the words of God that he had said. Reminds me of the Canaanite woman who holds Jesus captive to his word. And Dr. Luther says he loves to be captivated that way. So I think here we see the Lord, he's, not stuck, right? That's not the right way of putting it. But I mean, Moses is taking the right approach in prayer, appealing to the Lord's mercy and his promises. This is your people, your heritage. You've redeemed them. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? So then don't regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness. So forget our sins. Remember not our sins, for you will bury them in the depths of the sea, but remember your mercy, O Lord. And I, I did want to... Um, home in on that word heritage also really sure briefly that um, it is the same word that is used in Psalm 127 to talk about how children are a heritage from the Lord which has this really strong sense of gift and inheritance and not something that you could merit or deserve but it's it's something that is is received as a gift mm. well so what's what's striking about the use of heritage here is that what Moses is saying to the Lord is Israel, these stubborn, stiff-necked people, that's mm-hmm. the inheritance yeah. that you have, Lord. Exactly, and, and and that's what I wanted to get at is, how does he inherit them? It is through the death of his son. Mm. Wow. I mean, well, and what a, again, to, to marvel at the grace of God yeah. here, what an inheritance. You know, when the, when the first son went to his father in Jesus' parable in Luke 15 and asked for his share of the inheritance, he wasn't looking for the the poor half he wanted the best of the yeah. fathers and when the lord chooses for himself an inheritance he chooses the the stiff-necked people yeah, the for himself small unrighteous stiff-necked people and yet that's you know Christ Jesus came to die to redeem sinners right yeah. of whom I'm chief well and and that rem- I mean, first corinthians again in chapter 1 when when paul talks to the corinthians and he said remember mm-hmm. who you were when you were called yep. you were the the weak the yep. insignificant ones but God chose you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What a, what a wonderful gospel that he chooses to make his inheritance, the people of Israel and sinners still today. What a, what a marvelous thing. So, and again, to, to call it your people, mm-hmm. your heritage, whom you redeemed through your greatness. So, I mean, he, he reminds Moses of his, or sorry, Moses reminds God of his promises. You mentioned the Canaanite woman does something similar to Jesus. How how does this provide a model for the prayers of Christians today? What does it mean for Christians to pray and hold God captive to his promises? Yeah, so whatever God has promised in Holy Scripture or has attached to uh, uh, the sacraments, so the word in baptism, his name, 
which has been put upon you, whatever he has said about that, he is going to stand behind. And so you can always go to him and say, Lord, you have always promised to be gracious, merciful, and forgiving to me. I come to you with my many sins and transgressions. Please blot them out. Hmm. Is he going to say yes? Absolutely. Now, we do have to recognize the Lord has not promised health, wealth, prosperity, earthly happiness, right? Instead, oftentimes our blessings are crosses and trials. So we should not be thinking in a kind of a human worldly way, having our mind set on worldly things. But when it comes to the spiritual promises that he's made, the heavenly promises in Christ, we can always count on them and and not and fight against despair that way. Because when I start to look at myself, I think there's no possible way I could be uh, redeemed. I'm too wretched, a sinner. But that's why you have to keep your eyes fixed on the promises of forgiveness of sins, life and salvation. When it comes to Moses holding God to his promises, one of the places that I, I find great applicability to Christians today would be, and, and this I'm sure is a, a situation you faced as a, a pastor as well, where you have a, a parent whose adult child usually has forsaken the faith. And, and I, I encourage those parents to to pray similarly to Moses that, you know, Lord, I brought this child to the font where you made a promise to him. Remember that promise. Mm-hmm. And I, I find that to be a very helpful way when that's the situation being faced by Christians today. Right. Yeah. So hold God to his promises, like Moses, like the Canaanite woman. That's a fantastic text. We see that intercessory promise. And again, remind us, how does this then point us forward to Jesus in his role as, as intercessor? Um, well, Jesus is, in John 17, right before his passion, portrayed as the great high priest who offers a prayer first on behalf of his disciples, then on behalf of all those who would come to faith through the disciples. And so we see that that intercession right before his passion. So we see him fulfilling his role as prophet, priest, and king. Um, We also have him mentioned in the book of Hebrews as our great high priest who intercedes for us. Romans chapter 8, Christ Jesus is at the right hand of God interceding for us. So here we see that um, Jesus fulfilling that that function once and for all Mm. for us men. The other thing that that Moses does here in his prayer, which again may be somewhat surprising, is he, he... calls God to think about his own reputation among the nations. Talk a little bit about how, how Moses uses that to I don't, persuade God, but to pray to God here. Well, I think it's um, perfectly compatible with what we hear in Exodus chapter 30, I mean, Ezekiel 36, mm-hmm. when the people have been, of course, for their idolatry driven into captivity, the Lord says, for the sake of my name, I'm going to gather you back in. So the Lord is concerned about preserving his reputation as a promise keeper. He has said, you're my people. And if he were to, as Moses puts it, you know, give the impression that he hates them, then that would actually contradict his, his saying to them that I love them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the Lord is concerned about preserving his reputation for keeping his promises and for showing mercy to his people. So he won't have his name tarnished among the nations. And that's the point that he makes in Ezekiel 36, where he's talking about what he's going to do for his people and in, in bringing them back. Mm-hmm. He's, it's the same. I think it's pretty much the same point that he makes here. Look, it's not because of your righteousness. Mm-hmm. I'm doing this for my own sake, right. which almost, I mean, it may sound selfish, but it it's not. It's the Lord preserving his honor and in preserving his his honor or his name, I think that's where we should think yes. about this. You know, his name, the second commandment, the first petition. In doing that, then that is great benefit to the sinner. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 
So yeah, how does I mean, what is the connection with the with the name of God, him doing this for the sake of his name, as he says in Ezekiel 36? What are the, the connections to the say the second commandment, the misuse of or the proper use of God's name, and then the hallowing of God's name in the first petition? Yeah. So the um the greatest way to uphold and honor God's name is to speak his word of truth and to to trust in that word of truth. And a, a person's name and their reputation and their reliability are bound up together. Mm. So when the Lord, you know, the Lord's name really is the gospel in a nutshell. And it is everything that he, he is and has and has said to us in the scriptures. And so it, it has to do with his dependability. Can we count on his name or not? And the answer is very clearly yes. Moses banks on that as he prays. And and I think just to kind of wet our wet the appetite for the next chapter, the fact that the Lord gives them two more tablets of stone, this is the indication that yes, he has in fact answered Moses' prayer. Yeah, so again, there is a sort of sacramental character almost to the the tablets not that they're the gospel not, you know not that they're the forgiveness of sins but there is something tangible for the people to look at and see this shows that what we broke previously now the lord has put together whole and now we have a fresh start and that's what the forgiveness of our sins is every day of our lives we break ourselves we shatter ourselves to pieces we rebel against the lord but as he calls us back and covers us with the righteousness of christ we're made whole again to take up our cross each day and follow our Lord. Hmm. With about a minute left here, Pastor Roth, we've covered a lot of ground here in Deuteronomy 9. How, do, how should we wrap this up? What's the, the good news for us listening to the golden calf incident? Well, I just uh, focus on the last verse that, that we heard today. They are your people and your heritage. That's y'all, right? That's all of you who have been baptized into Christ. The Lord has chosen you as his inheritance as mind-boggling as that may be, what what in the world could privilege me so much that I should be acceptable to the Lord and brought into his household as a child? But uh, the reason is because of his great power and his outstretched arm, right? Psalm 98, his right hand and his holy arm have accomplished salvation for us. And that is a reference to our Lord Jesus Christ, our Father's right-hand man, who reigns from there over the entire universe for our good. Pastor Carl Roth is pastor at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas, helping us today with Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 1 to 29. Pastor Roth, thanks for being our guest today. It's a pleasure. No one is righteous. No, not one. The Lord did not deliver his people. He did not deliver us because of our righteousness. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What wonderful good news from our Lord Jesus Christ. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Deuteronomy, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.